0: How's everybody today? I already said that. That's the wrong cue. This is the one where I say, if you have your Bibles, open them up, please, to Colossians chapter 2. Alright, Colossians chapter 2, where we um, left off last week, as you remember, Colossians is, it breaks up into three specific categories. In Colossians chapter 1, um, Paul is talking about the, the truth about the Christ, or the truth about the Messiah. Basically, the truth about Jesus, who Jesus is. And really, for us as, as Christians, it is the most, and one of the most important things, that, that we have the right Jesus, and people think, well, that's crazy. Jesus is Jesus, right? Well, no, not so much. That's just actually not the case. Because unfortunately, there, there's so many different Jesuses out there. And if you really get down to it, we use the same vocabulary with a lot of folks, but we have a different dictionary. For example, if you ask a Jehovah Witness and you, you really get down to, to it when they come knock on your door and you, you find out who is Jesus... They say that Jesus was um, Michael, the archangel who came out of heaven and was Jesus while he was here. And when he went back into heaven, he he's again, Michael, the archangel. Now, same term, they say Jesus, but but really it's it's defined differently and then the very fact that Jesus himself and that, that can be repeated over and over again with um, one of the examples I use often is Islam, because um, Jesus is mentioned and a lot of folks don't realize this, but Jesus is mentioned seven times in the Quran. But, but again, if you talk about who Jesus is, according to the Quran and who we believe he is, it's two different things. And, and Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, this is the case that he's making. A, a case of who Jesus is. And we found out two weeks ago that Jesus is preeminent. And that's what Paul used to describe him. And the whole idea we unpacked two weeks ago of the preeminence of Christ. Paul tells us that in him, through him, by him, for him... Is, is, is kind of the theme of, of chapter 1. All things were created, that Jesus is the creator, and not only the creator, but the sustainer of all things. Jesus himself made it the, 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 one of the premises of his ministry while he was here. And as I've shared each week, and importantly so, Jesus asked his disciples a question, Who do men say that I am? And, and, and what I, what's interesting to me is that even in the day of Jesus, there was rumors and, 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 and whispers about who they were. Because when Jesus asked the disciples who spent most of their time with him, who do men say that I am? The disciples came back with four or five different ideas that they were hearing on the streets. And, and, and for you and I, again, if we go around and we really find out and ask somebody, Who is Jesus? Then then we we'll like the disciples will have lots of different answers. And then Jesus asks the most important question, but who do you say that I am? Because it's important. And some folks might have the opinion or the idea that, that all the different Jesuses that are out there, several that I just mentioned and many that I didn't, that either one, it doesn't matter, it's okay. We're all on the right path if it's Jesus. And I want to tell you that's just not the truth. And the fact that you have to get Jesus right is is heaven or hell. You guys follow that? That's serious. The fact that you get Jesus right is so important that the Bible spends a lot of time making sure that we understand that. And so that's what Colossians chapter 1 about is about. Who? The truth about the Messiah. That Jesus is preeminent. Basically, in short, that Jesus is all you need. And then in chapter 2, we started last week, Paul's talking about the truth about the cults. And so last week, really for the first time, since I think I've been here in this church, in this building, we talked about very um, directly the kingdom of the cults. And, you know, I usually kind of be sensitive and I dance a little bit around some of the sensitive topics. And and last week there was just no place for that. There was no time and I tried to do it tactfully and and honestly about the truth of what the word of God says concerning um, the kingdom of the cults. Now, as I talked about last week, nobody wants to be called a cult member, you know, and it's become derogatory or it's become, you know, like offensive to use that term. But just by dictionary definition of what is a cult, uh, the dictionary definition of a cult is anyone who has strayed from Orthodox Christianity. So what did the apostles believe in the first century? What did Peter believe? What did Paul believe? What did the early church practice? And lots of people will tell you very readily, very easily, yeah, we, we have another gospel. We have addition to that. We have further information. We do something a little differently. Well, by their own admission, that's the, that's the definition of a cult. But again, you know, so we can do away with the, the term if it's offensive to people. But just so that we understand, it's not intended to be offensive. It's just t- intended just to mean that they've strayed from orthodox Christianity from what the early church practiced, so Paul is dealing with the kingdom of the cults. Another term that we use besides cults um, in in chapter two is what we call the second in folks. So the second in folks, um, as you guys know, Paul spent most of his life doing what? Traveling, right, all over the known world, or at the time, not actually, not necessarily all over the known world. Paul spent his time from Israel, and then you go north, you hit Lebanon. Syria and Turkey. A lot of the places, a lot of the churches that Paul planted were in modern a turkey along the coast, and then he ended up, if you keep going along that kind of little circle around there through Turkey, you'll end up where Paul ended the end of his life in Rome, in Italy, along the boot, and so in there is Ephesus and um, Colossians where we are today, and Paul's custom is he would go and he would find a group of Jews meeting on a Saturday, and he would begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, and then as folks began to come to Jesus and get saved, then Paul would start a church, a Sunday morning church, and, and Paul would build the church and then and then what happened Paul would eventually raise up leaders and turn the church over to the folks that were there and basically what so much of the new testament is is Paul, in the, in the epistles part, not the gospels, but in the epistles part, is Paul then writing letters back to these places that he traveled. You guys, you those, know, those maps in the back of your, your Bible and you have all these different colored strings that go through the, the Asia Minor there. Well, those are all the different three times that Paul traveled. And, and so Paul actually was never in Colossus, where the, the, the church that we're studying today. Paul spent a lot of time and just led by the Holy Spirit, when he got to Ephesus, that's where the, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. But Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus for whatever reason. And there in Ephesus, Paul worked full time. He, he wasn't supported by the church. Some places he went, Paul um, received a salary from the churches. And some places Paul went, he, he had to work full time. And so while he was in Ephesus, he worked, and the way that, that the day would work, the work day in Ephesus in those days, and I think in some places still this way, you start early in the morning and you work till about noon. And then from noon to four, because it's the hottest part of the day, and this is pre-air conditioning, and um, they, they would go home and they would eat and then they would sleep. It was said of Ephesus that you could find more people sleeping at one o'clock in the afternoon than you could at one in the morning. And then you go back to work at four and you work the rest of your shift and then you come home, you have a couple hours in the evening. We, we blow it, right? We, I mean, we don't really have a hot time in here, but it'd be kind of nice to come home and have a siesta in the middle of the day every day. But that was the culture. And so during that four-hour break in the middle of the workday, Paul didn't go home and sleep Paul went and he started a Bible college in Ephesus called the school of Tyrannus from the book of Acts. And in the school of Tyrannus, Paul raised up young men and he sent them out to start different churches. And one of the churches that um, a a young man by the name of Philemon, who Paul raised up in in the school of Tyrannus, he ended up in Colossae and he started the church in Colossae. And Paul is writing a letter. And so um, all that to say that in all these different stops that Paul made, and, and, and the model for the church that we have today, that's how I, that's how I got here. You know, I, a church grew up, we raised up pastors, and when God called us, and God calls, and we go out to where God tells us to go, and we, we, we plant churches. So I was ordained, but listen, the church doesn't ordain anybody. You and I, we as a church, we, we don't ordain anybody. God ordains. It's God that calls What we do as a church collectively is you and I, we recognize a call of God on somebody's life. And maybe God's going to raise up a a young person, an old person, somebody in our church. And they feel called to go start another church. And we'll ordain them and we'll send them out as Paul did. And all that ordination is, is you and I agreeing and saying, man, this, this young person is called of God. We see a call of God on their life. They're doing the ministry. They're, it's, it's easily recognizable to the folks around that, that they have a call of God on their lives. And so then the church says, yeah, you can see it. Yeah, I can see it. You can see it. We all see it. So now we can ordain them. But it doesn't really come from us, right? It comes from God. And all we're doing and all the church is doing by ordination is recognizing a call of God on someone's life. You know, sometimes we get folks come through the church and they they want to be ordained. And I'm like, if you want to be ordained, you don't even really know what that means. You don't understand what that is. Like, I don't ordain you. I could try. You want to try? I get some holy water. I'm like, I've always wanted to like make the sign of the cross, chuck, chuck, mandu and do some weird stuff. And maybe something will happen, but it doesn't really work. So Paul, again, side note, Paul, again, was was, um, raising folks up. And, and sending them to these churches. Well, what would happen is the second in, that was all to talking about the topic of second in folks, cults, second in. So the second in folks were the ones that would come behind the work that Paul did. After Paul left, and Paul was the big dog, and they didn't want to fight with Paul because they'd lose. And Paul had a lot of credibility. But when Paul left, these people that were raising up, they were good people, but they weren't experienced as Paul and was young, and the, the, the early church was just beginning. And, and the early in folks, or the 2nd in folks, would come in behind Paul, and they'd say, Yeah, Paul preached the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's great, but... You, you, you're you missing some information. You also need to, and depending on which group it was, there were several, the Judaizers, which were the, the former Jews who were becoming you know, Christian, they would come in and they would say, yeah, that's all good, but you also have to be circumcised. You also have to keep the law of Moses. You also have to keep certain portions of the law of Moses. The Gnostics and the different other groups would come in and say, yeah, that's great what Paul preaches, grace and faith and all that good stuff. And and Jesus is sufficient, but he is... But you also have to have higher learning, and that's elementary. And if you really want to be godly, you need to X, Y, and Z. And so that is what Paul, gloves off, is talking about in Colossians chapter 2. Now as we get in, we're going to pick it up in verse 6. But I'd like you guys to do a little exercise with me. So I'm going to read part of a verse, and I'd like for you to be looking at your Bibles as I do it and help me fill in the blanks to kind of catch the theme. So Paul is dealing, again, with your, in your life and my life, <clears throat> With this group. And Paul doesn't want us to get tricked by him. He wants us to have liberty. Look what he says. In verse 4 of chapter 2. Paul says. Now this I say. Lest anyone should. Blank. Deceive. And look at verse number 7. I'm sorry. Verse number 8. Beware lest anyone. Look at verse 16. And he says. So let no one. Judge you. In verse 18. Let no one cheat you. So uh, just in this chapter alone, Paul is talking about he doesn't want you to be deceived. He doesn't want you to be cheated. He doesn't want you um, to be cheated twice. He doesn't want you to let anyone judge you concerning um, matters of the gospel, of holy days and of sabbaths and food. And so that's the premise that Paul's talking about, that it's a warning. And he realized that um, this letter was written almost 2,000 years ago but, but the same deception that was happening then is valid in your life and my life today. So we never want to look at this as, oh, well, this is old stuff we don't face today. You know what you find? That Satan has the same tricks. Satan's really not that crafty and cunning. He's really only got three plays, the Bible tells us. And so Jesus said, narrow is the road that leads to salvation. But broad is the way that leads to destruction. And, and, and many will go thereby. And Jesus said, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and no man comes to the Father except through me. If you want to go to heaven, it's only by the narrow road of Jesus Christ. But Satan understands something. He doesn't have to get you on a narrow road of deception to keep you off of the narrow road of salvation. And, and his road is so broad, Jesus told us, to warn us. And Satan understands it doesn't matter which lane you drive in on his road. He just got to get you on his side. And so he has the entire plethora. So what he has done to the truth is he's just, all he has to do is saturate it with so many lies that it's hard to figure out which is the truth. It's not like Satan has to, you know, get you to believe one thing. But what you find, and even if you look at the different religions of the world, so many of the things are very similar. You know, one of the, one of the things I'll just point out, Briefly, one of the things that's similar in several different religions that believe different things, but the it's a factor. And I believe because it's a lie of Satan in, in some religions, one of the um, rewards of heaven is sex. And it's consistent and it's a lie of Satan. Jesus said there'll be neither marrying nor giving in marriage in heaven, it says that we're all the bride of Christ. Could you guys see Dan in a white, white, white wedding dress? One day you're going to him and Pat are going to be in white wedding dresses because we are, we are the bride of Christ, including these two rough, tough guys. But, but the, the, again, the, the point being that Satan is a lot of similarities, broad road, but a lot of his tricks are the same. And Paul's warning us against them. Look, look at verse number six, chapter two, verse number six. It says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. And so in verse seven, he says, rooted up, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And then he says, Beware, in verse number 8, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. And there's so much philosophy out there, and Paul doesn't want you to be cheated by philosophy. You know how we get cheated? We follow these um, traditions of men and we put rules on ourselves and regulations on ourselves that God never intended. And we think that somehow it makes us more holy or more acceptable to God. And it's just not true. And it really robs um, the freedom and that, that Christ offers to you. And Paul doesn't want us to be cheated with those things. Paul wants us to live in the liberty and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and then he says it, the traditions of men in verse 8. Hold your finger on that in verse number 8 of traditions of men. And then look at verse 22 in the same chapter. And the last three words says what? Verse 22? The doctrines of men. So just in case Paul misses the idea or the concept, he, he doubles down in the end that it's, it's traditions of men. And then he calls it another way. So to cover all bases, the, the traditions of men, the doctrines of men. So, so what are these things that, that God or that Paul wants to warn us to keep us from here? And, and I wish I had some better examples. So I always use the same ones, but they're true. But we in the church, oftentimes we develop something that we believe is godly. We believe is inspired and we should do it if we're, if we're Christians, if we're holy people. One of the things that, that's crept in the church and that happened in the church historically was at, at some point, I don't know when, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, this really wild instrument was introduced into the church. And at the time it was so radical, people were like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if we can do this. It was called a pipe organ. And it was so radical for its day that they didn't know if they should bring it in the church. But some... Crazy radical punk rockers in the 1600s brought this thing into the church. And then people started liking it. And and and, and then God people were worshiping the Lord and and the services were were doing well and, and the music was lovely. And and all of a sudden, in a hundred years later, somewhere developed the idea, tradition of men, that it was the only acceptable instrument in the church. It was a pipe organ. And and again, you know what I'll do if that's true? I promise you, I'll, I'll throw the drums in the trash. I'll get rid of the stringed instruments. We'll get rid of uh, Rachel's pretty new piano. And we'll bring a pipe organ in here. Just show me where it says it in the Bible. And, and I'll get rid of them. If it doesn't say it in the Bible, if you can't show me, then is, it, is there a chance that that particular topic is a tradition of men? Matter of fact, and again, I talk about this all the time, but I want you guys to see it. Turn with me to Psalm 150. If you can find the book of Psalms, just find the last chapter in the book of Psalms. If you get to Proverbs, you've gone too far. But look what God says about music and the Psalms and God's prescription for worship in the church. Really what we need to tell those folks that don't like the stringed instruments and the drums is that we're not the ones who's in sin. You know, if, if they're not dancing and have all these other things, they got the problem, not us. Look what God says in Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Uh oh, we're in trouble. We don't have a trumpet. But I'll tell you if you play the trumpet, anybody in here? You're hired, okay? You're hired. So just show up to practice on Thursday night and start practicing. And when Brian makes the sign of the cross over you and says, Chuck, Chuck, Mindu, you're on the team. Okay. So if you play the trumpet and you, you come on out. And then he says, praise him with the lute and the harp. God's prescription. Psalm 150. Anybody play the lute or the harp? You're also hired. And then he says, um, praise him with the timbrel. And I love this one in verse four and the dance. How many of you guys dance when you praise him? I try. I try, to, I try to do it okay, but I'm like, you know? You know what the Jews do when they praise God? When you go to the Western Wall, you guys have probably seen it on TV before, but you'll see Jews in the Western Wall. And they stand on the Western Wall and they go like this. And you're like, what the heck is that guy doing? And the reason why he's doing that is because Psalm one hundred fifty 50 says, um, let every bone of your body, let everything you have praise the Lord. And so what a Jew does is he wiggles his toes in his shoes and he moves his fingers and he, and he, and he moves every bone of his body as he praises the Lord in obedience to God's word. And then, and then God's word says in, in, in verse 5, I love this one, praise him with loud cymbals. I wish Josh was up here. I'd have him bang on them cymbals really loud. God doesn't just say symbols. When he gets to the percussion instruments, he gives us an adjective, loud symbols. So you can't say anything. You can't say anything about the drums. It's a tradition of men. Because God actually prescribed loud symbols, and then he, and then he doubles down, praising with clashing symbols. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. And so, again, another tradition of men is how we dress in church. Now, I have a wonderful family members, relatives, love Jesus, wonderful people. Um, and they, they wear suits to church every week. And they think I should wear a suit to church every week. And when you question them on it, it usually goes something like this. Well, because it's reverent. And, and, and you're coming to God's house. You should give God your best. And I would totally agree with that. That, that, that. That's a good reason. And if you feel that way, then please dress appropriately. But here's the problem if you think everybody has that your appropriate dress has to match everybody else's appropriate dress, which is a a white shirt and a tie and whatever else, unless you can show me in here where it says I got to wear a tie or where there is a certain appropriate dress. Just show me honestly, you guys, and I'm being sincere to the heart. You show it to me and next week I'll change because I want to do what the word of God says. But you know what? You want to be reverent. The the issue of reverence doesn't come from what's on your back. The issue of reverence comes from what's in your heart. You can wear all the Gucci suits you want with all the fancy ties and handkerchief to match. And you can beat your wife and cuss your kids out in the parking lot. And you could come in here in your Gucci suit. And you're not reverent. You can come in here in tattered clothes and be like the guy that was just wouldn't even lift his head to the Lord to pray, just put his head down and say, God, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. Just broken before the Lord. God, touch my life. And you're more reverent than the guy that's dressed up. So yeah, God wants reverence. But reverence is not what's on your back, it's what's in your heart. And so, But again, it's a tradition of men that Paul warns us for. And the cool thing is about, about the gospel, you realize the gospel is good news? And the good thing about the gospel is that God, God wants you to have freedom. He doesn't want you to be wrapped up in all this legalistic nonsense. God says, stop it. I care about your heart. I care about the reality of just who you are, and I love you. And there's so many things that are so more important to me than what's on your back, than, than you know, what kind of instruments you use. You know, I, I just can't imagine the children of Israel, two million of them marching through the wilderness with the personality and the style they got singing hymns like this. The pipe organ. See, I think Moses had long hair, and he was like, no, I'm just kidding. I don't I don't know that Moses did that. That's what I would have done. But but if he did, the Bible doesn't say he can't do that, okay? So if the Bible does, let's do it. Let's just let's just, as Paul warns us, twice in, in Colossians chapter 2 about the traditions of men. And then he says, um, of the world, not according to Christ, for in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So um, in verse 8, look at it. According to who? Christ. So he, here's the, um, the biblical example that the Bible lays out for us. You and I are called the blank of Christ, the bride of Christ in one place. But as a whole, the church is called the, the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Okay? But we're not the head. You and I don't make up the head. The Bible says, and Paul tells us in Corinthians, some of us are different parts of the body. You know, um, the people that are in the children's ministry, they're the hands that that handle. I'm the obnoxious mouthpiece. And some other people are the eyes that that have discernment. They see the things that in the church and the needs in the body. And other people are the legs that that make things happen. And that's what Paul says, that, that we're the body. But very clearly... Over and over and over again, the Bible says that Jesus is the head. And, and where does the body go? Where the head turns, where the head leads, where the eyes are looking. And so Jesus is the head of the church. And Paul's making that point that Jesus is the head. And we, we, we need to follow Jesus in the church. What do we need? Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all that you need. And is the head. And then then Paul makes really the key verse for chapter 1, the culmination of chapter 1, the of chapter 2 is found right here in verse 9 and 10. So let's look at it. And and this is, if we could just get this, this is everything I'm trying to say to you guys that I'm trying to unpack. Paul puts it right here in verse 9 and 10. He says, for in him, who's him? Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Somebody say all. So in Jesus dwells all. Everything you need for in him, for or of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Somebody say complete. So what do you lack? Somebody say nothing. So what do you need besides Jesus? Do you need additional writings? Do you need other information? Do you need more books? Do you need, you know, and, and when we talk about Jesus, don't, don't forget what, what the Bible teaches us about Jesus for this reason. John 1, 1, a verse you all have memorized, right? Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Kind of an anomaly, kind of a hard thing to to technically understand in our minds, but the Bible's pretty clear that Jesus is the Word of God. And so when it says in Him," it includes the, 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 the written word, the logos, the, the Word of God that you have on your lap, and that's all you need. You're complete in Jesus in His word. We've talked about it. We unpacked it last week. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In times sundry, in times past, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, God speaks through his son. In the same vein, the same idea, his son is the word. God speaks through the word. God speaks through his son. Jesus is all you need. Amen? So I pound the pulpit because it's Paul's pounding the pulpit. I mean, he's driving home the reality um, that you're complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. I'm going to unpack principality and power in verse 15. So just hang on to that thought. And then it says in verse 11 in him. You, actually, one more thing. I, I was going to pass on it, but I, I'm not going to real quick. If, if you can stay here, if you can turn with me quick, just a couple pages to the right. First Timothy chapter 2. Because I love what Paul says um, to Timothy about this same idea. Now listen, so many things that we study in the Bible, I want you to understand that they're not isolated in one epistle or in one place in the Bible. So many of these truths, Paul repeated... And and Paul talked about because if they were dealing with it in Colossae, there's a good chance they were dealing with it in Ephesus. And so in the book of Ephesians or Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus or Philemon or in any of the other New Testament, you find these same things Or Romans where Paul's giving us a complete gospel and truth compiled in one writing to in the, the book of Romans. But I'm just saying that you, you find these same concepts repeated over and over and over again. And the idea that Jesus is enough, the idea is that Jesus is all you need. I love the way Paul puts it to Timothy. Same thing, same teaching. So I want to highlight it in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 4. It's not about 4, it's a verse 5, but I can't skip 4. It says, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Realize that Jesus doesn't want any of you not to be saved. It's not his heart. He's not mad at you. And You know, the Bible says the psalmist said that, that, that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked because they go to hell, and it's not God's will that any should, should perish. You know, what's interesting about this verse is that when we, when we pray for salvation for somebody, you know, Jesus said, anything you ask according to my will will be done for you. And here it says it's his will that all people be saved. So just know when you're praying for somebody to be saved, you're praying according to the will of God. Amen? Okay, verse 5 is what I wanted to highlight, though. Paul says, for there is no one and... I'm oh, sorry, no one. For there is one God, one mediator... Somebody say, one mediator... Between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, is the way Paul puts it to Timothy. There's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So how many different avenues of mediation has God created for you and I? And that one is what? Paul makes a point to Timothy. He makes the point in the Colossians he spends an entire chapter Colossians chapter one, um, identifying who that Jesus is and how he's in preeminent and important and, and who he is in chapter two, he warns us against those things. And I'm warning us today. I'm encouraging us today. All you need is Jesus. That's the message. If I could just get that through. And again, I'm just going to spend a lot of time saying the same thing over and over again, because that's what Paul's doing here. And then, um, In verse 11 of chapter 2, back in Colossians, he says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he talks about a circumcision, a cutting away of the flesh. And here he talks about it through baptism in verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, which you you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So, um, so the, the cutting away of the flesh without hands is a picture. Do you remember Jesus? He's speaking to Nicodemus in chapter three, and he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus's eyes started getting crossed and he got kind of twisted about the whole thing that Jesus just told him. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, well, how can I do that? Can I crawl back in my mother's womb a second time and be born? Now, honest question, I think, I think Nicodemus is just being sincere and, and wanting to understand what Jesus meant about being born again. And so he asked Jesus, how does that happen? Do I crawl back in my mother's womb and get born again? And obviously that's not what Jesus talked about. But Jesus said, no, you, you know, so, so the idea of being born again is necessary. And whenever Jesus says you must, guess what? You must. And he said, you must be born again. And so there's a concept that's biblical that Paul's highlighting for us here that's dead and alive. Another way to put it would be saved and unsaved. Paul tells the Ephesians, you who were once dead to trespasses and sins, he made alive through his son. So so the process of becoming born again or going to heaven, God describes it as being dead and alive, and Paul's describing how that plays out in baptism. But, you know, the reality is, you know, I, I talk to people. And one of the things I, I run into when I witness to people sometimes is people say, oh, I read the Bible. It didn't mean nothing to me. Oh, I prayed that prayer. Nothing happened. You know, and the issue is not intellect for people who read the Bible. Maybe some of those people were sincere and really did read the Bible and nothing happened. But the reality is... I think Jack Sparrow put it best. Dead men tell no tales. Dead people don't read too well either. And the issue, if you're dead, you don't read well. If you're dead, you don't understand, you don't perceive. And the issue is not intellect. The issue is what Jesus said, that you have to be born again. And then what does the world say? So the same thing that they, they said, they said, show us a sign and we'll believe. The world today, how many people you know and say, well, yeah, if God, you know, I have people tell me this. Okay, if your God's alive, then have him strike me with lightning right now. If he strikes me with lightning right now, I'll believe. And does he get struck with lightning? No, God, don't work that way. People don't like it. Oh, if God would just show me a sign, I'll believe. And Jesus said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, which already passed. And and the reality is, but what he does say he doesn't do it that way. People don't like it. Why don't God just, why don't God, God he's God. Why don't he just give us an easy sign? And then we'll all believe. Nope. Sorry. If you're one of those people and you're just waiting for a sign, here's what I want to say to you. Tough. You don't like it. I mean, it, it, maybe it should be nice to you. It's okay, sweetie. But God's not going to do it that way. He says, he's not going to, you know, this notice what he says. He says, once you believe, once you put your faith in God, and, and God's Holy Spirit comes in your life. Something happens. You become alive, God says. And he said, once that happens, now I'm able, now you're able to see things you couldn't see because when you, when you were dead, understand things you didn't understand, perceive things you didn't perceive, because it comes from life. And God's not going to give you life before you ask for life, before you get life. And that's why there's no sign. Because it's not a matter of sign. It's a matter of life and death. You guys follow me? Are we Are we together? So... So becoming alive in Christ, you, you now read the Bible differently. Now the Holy Spirit of God has lived in you. We, we already learned in, in Colossians right, chapter 1 that in Him, the hope of glory, that great mystery that Paul reveals in chapter 1, is Christ in us. And so being alive. And so the picture of that life and of baptism that Paul's describing, and we often say, let's pretend, and I don't know how to do it, that the old you, the one that was dead, the new you, the one that's alive, there's a separation that has to happen. And, and, and where that happens is in water baptism. It's one of the, the spiritual lessons, principles, reasons of obedience for water baptism. As you go under the water, God says the old you stays under there and the new you comes out. And that old, old you that's dead never comes out of the water. And as same thing that happened with Jesus, as you come out of the water, the Holy Spirit of God comes down and, and makes residency in your life. God it says that the Holy Spirit came down as a dove and alighted and remained upon Jesus. And a voice from heaven cried out, this is my son, hear ye him. This is my beloved son in whom I am pl- who well pleased, hear ye him. And, and so that's the picture. And Paul highlights that, that, that the issue is becoming alive. And that circumcision that's not made with the hands, it's not like the legalistic people are saying that you have to be um, circumcised. In verse 13 he says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Somebody say all. So listen, if you're you're alive in Christ, God's forgiven you all your trespasses. And it doesn't matter about your rules and your regulations. They're not going to help you. You're good. You don't need help. God has done all. And then Paul in verse 14, I love verse 14. He says, listen, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having somebody nailed it to the cross. So he's talking about a handwriting of requirements. Why is it handwritten? Because it's things that men write down that are traditions of men, doctrines of men. Paul gives us this rhetorical um, in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Paul's talking about the same concept. And this is a pretend list that Paul just throws off the top of his head. And he says, oh, do not touch. Do not taste, I don't know, coffee. Do not handle whatever. You know, hot drinks with caffeine in them. I mean, you know, whatever's on your list. I don't care. Okay? Okay. And that's what Paul's talking about. Listen, this, this is what God did. This list of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, I love it. Jesus just came up as almost he's like Give me he said, Gimme that. And just ripped the list right out of your hand. And then he went over and he nailed it to the cross. You guys ever use that term, nailed it? Next time you do something really cool and somebody says something to you, just say, nailed it. Kind of feels good. But Jesus nailed it to the cross. You know, it almost puts like a new respect to, to Martin Luther, who, who was a part of the Catholic Church. And, and he got a hold of a Bible, and he started reading the Bible. And he was finding all these things. He was reading Romans, and he was, his mind was blown. he's going, all the stuff that I've been taught, all these traditions of men, they're not even in the Bible. And Martin Luther started writing things down that he was finding that weren't true. And God's Holy Spirit was being poured out of him. And, and our church today, it's born out of the Reformation. Now, the Reformation came a long way, and he had a long way to go. And Martin Luther did have some problems. His biggest problem being was that he hated Jews, which was a pretty big problem. <laughs> but, but but just the, the, the boldness of Martin Luther, who took the things that weren't true. What do you mean, I, I can't prepay for sins? No, you can't. He wrote down the 95 Thesis, and he went to the door of the church, and he nailed them to the door. Well, Jesus takes your list. That list of what? That list of things that you put in your life that are doctrines of men, they're traditions, that are things that, that keep you, you know, legalistic. And Jesus just says, give me that. And he nails it to the cross. Because by the blood of Jesus and on the cross, you, you have freedom. You have liberty in Christ. You have liberty. Now, the Bible says don't take your liberty as a, you know, and people hate this message sometimes. Like, no, pastor, you can't tell people that. They'll go crazy, sinning. No, they won't. No, they won't. It works exactly the opposite. Because what we're going to tell them is you've got to fall in love with Jesus. And, and you've got to seek Jesus. And, and, and you've got to spend time with Jesus. And you got to John 15, 5. You've got to abide in Christ. And if you get up every morning and you spend some time with Jesus and you spend time with him out the day and you hear his voice, you, you're not going to want to do those things. You're going to want to walk in liberty. And when you have a liberty that you, you don't have to try to please God, It gives you a freedom of life that God wants for you. And Paul warns about, and Paul's encouraging here in chapter 2, he's got something so much better for you than the legalism and the rules and the regulations that don't benefit you anyways, he's going to say in a minute. In verse 15, he said, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The Bible says that Jesus defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. Public spectacle of, of principalities and powers. Principalities and powers are mentioned twice in chapter 2. Now, they're also mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. And whenever you see a principality or a power, that basically are demons. They're, they're different hosts of demons. In Ephesians, it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against... Principalities and powers, the same word, the same idea here. And just really briefly, Jesus and Paul is telling us that, that, that he that is in you, John tells us, is greater than he that is in the world. And that God's triumphed over those things in your life. And those demons, those principalities, those spiritual battles that you face, you also have victory over those. And then he says... Um, In verse 16, so let no one judge you in food and drink regarding a a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. So um, why did Paul mention food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath? Because those were the things that particularly the Judaizers or the folks, the second in folks that were, um, you know, wanting him to return to parts of the law of Moses. You know, we have we have a group today. We have a group called the Seventh-day Adventist. A lot of good things from the Seventh-day Adventists. But the Seventh-day Adventists is a church movement that was born out of the idea that we're evil if we worship on Sunday and that you have to worship on the Sabbath. And so they meet on Saturday. At least they got the day of the week right. So many other people that are Sabbatarians want you to observe it on Sunday. It's not even the It's not even the Sabbath. But why do we not meet on this on the Sabbath, which is Saturday? Because Paul didn't do that. When Paul went to a city, he went on Saturday. He met with the Jews. And as and and then when Paul started the church and started teaching them, they would do it on Sunday morning because Jesus rose on Sunday morning. And the early church met on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. And that's why we meet on Sunday morning. But but Paul also says, listen, if if people want to meet on Saturday, great meet on Saturday. Paul says, I esteem all days alike. I worship Jesus all seven days doesn't have to be a special day I worship the Lord. I worship Him seven days a week, 365 days a week. If folks want to get together on Saturday and worship Jesus, I'm there. If we want to get together on Sunday and worship Jesus, I'm there. But listen, this is what Paul is telling you. Let no one judge you concerning these things. Concerning the things that you, that you eat, the things that you drink. You know the gospel, again, it means good news. Why in the world... You want to know one of the reasons how... You know that, that that God is so good. One of the things that happened in the New Testament to the Jews and to these folks? Bacon. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the first time a Jew sunk his teeth into some bacon? Having, having you know, not been able to eat pork his whole life. And then he just gets some juicy, soft, thick bacon and he gets to gnaw on that. How in the world are you going to come after that and tell him, oh, no, 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 no. You have to go back. You can't eat bacon. He, you're crazy. Jesus is good. I don't know. I know Jesus is good because I can eat bacon now. And Paul says, don't let anyone judge you on those things. And, and, it's, and then he goes on and he says um, in verse 18, let no one what? Cheat you. So we're catching a little theme here, right? This is for you, you guys. Don't let no one cheat you. God doesn't, God doesn't want to allow that. He loves you as his children. You have a liberty in Christ. Don't let nobody cheat you. Don't let nobody judge you. Don't and and just be be gracious, you know? And you're going to you're going to face that especially in the county the community you live in. Folks are going to want to try to judge you. They're going to want to try to cheat you. Don't allow it. And he says, um, let no, no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worshiping angels. Pretty common when it says angels here, it's talking about fallen angels introducing into those things which he has not seen vainly puffed up by the flesh and mind and not somebody say not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? Jesus. So that's one of the errors that's going to lead you to allow people to cheat you to judge you is if you don't hold fast to the head. The head is Jesus. Jesus leads the body. Paul says, all you need is Jesus. Stay close to Jesus, plugged into Jesus and allow Jesus to lead your life because it's all about Jesus. And then he said in verse number 20, "Um, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? And then he gives this kind of facetious list, kind of this, you know, um, do not touch, do not taste made up thing that might be on your list. Don't, why, why do you subject yourself to these regulations? If you died with Christ, did you die with Christ? Are you born again? If you did, you have liberty. And don't, don't, don't tie those things again. To, you know, why have you returned? Paul told again, same concept. Paul told the others, why, why have you, who have you let bewitch you so quickly? Why have you so quickly returned to those things of bondage? Don't do it. And then, and then in verse 22, he says, which all concern things which perish with the using. It's like this real common sense verse number 22. It's almost like Paul saying, you know that bacon that they're judging you on that you're eating? What happens to it eventually? Where does it go? And we want to, f- that's what he's saying. And, and we want to fight over that. We, we we want to fight. We want to make issue over things that perish, over things that come and go, things you put in your body and then they go away and You know, they end up in places that these are the things really common sense. These are the things that we want to fight about. Like, look, look at what happens to that stuff in the end, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Paul says, and all that stuff is doctrines of men. Somebody wants you, you, you want to spend time talking and arguing with somebody about the the word of God, about what's sin, what's not sin. Just do it out of the word of God. Just lovingly sit down with the brother, open some verses. If he's got some different ideas, you know, we're not judging him either. We're not angry at him. Let's just go to the Word of God and let's have a conversation. Let's read some different verses and let's see what God has to say about it. Get out the concordance on your phone and type in a couple of key words that'll bring up verses. Read those verses, look up topics. And, and just try to see what God has so that take him here to Colossians 2 and show him um, traditions of men, doctrine of men. Which is it? Is it a tradition of men that Paul warns us about? Is it a doctrine of men that Paul tells us to, to stay away from? Or is it gospel? Is it what God intends for our lives? And then he says in verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Now, now some of these things, they, they, we follow them, we believe them because they sound what? They sound wise. They sound like they make sense. You know, we don't follow things that are too stupid most of the time. But, you know, so there's an appearance of wisdom. There's, there's a trickery to it, you know. And so these things appear to have wisdom, self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but of no value against indulgences of the flesh. Now, we'll just catch that last part and we'll be done today, you guys. He says, are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. So, what does that mean? They're of no value. So, let's say you're a Christian and you have um, certain things you do that are on that list that Paul said Jesus wants to take from you and nail to the cross. So... I always pick on the same thing, so I'll try to mix it up. So you um, think Friends is of the devil, so you don't watch Friends because good Christians would never watch Friends, and that's what's on your list. If I'm a good Christian, I don't watch Friends. Um, uh, if I'm a good Christian, I you know don't watch R-rated movies and I don't listen to X music, you know. And um, so so you have all those things on your list that that God didn't necessarily put on your list. Now, and I'm not making a case for Friends for it or against it. You know, my my thing is I don't watch it. But my, my thing is always the same. You seek God. And if God tells you, hey, that's trash, then turn it off. If, 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 if God, you know, you don't have that conviction. But, but here's, again, the mistake that the Bible warns us about. If I have a conviction that I can't go to and I can't read in black and white, the Bible says don't have sex outside of marriage. That's a conviction. If you're having any kind of sex outside of marriage, black and white, your life is living in sin and you're in danger of hellfire and damnation is what the Word of God says. That's black and white. But the the areas, there's lots of gray areas. And in those areas, it it can be a matter. Some things can be sin for me and and liberty for you. And and the danger is when God has spoken and God has impressed something on my heart that's a gray area, that's something for me that i got to stay away from. For whatever reason, according to the wisdom of my Father who loves me, He's asked me as a child, I I want you to stay away from these things. Now, I have to be obedient and I have to turn friends off and I have to be careful what I listen to or whatever it is that God spoke to me about. But what I can't do is I can't come to church and judge you or be angry at you or look down my nose at you because you watch friends or because you do some of those things that that God has spoken to my heart about legalism. And that's one of the biggest enemies of the gospel. We don't want to be legalistic. We want to be in love. We want to, we want to be, um, and, and, and Paul, but now, I want to catch it in context as we wrap up, I promise. But he says there's no value against those things, against indulgences. So let's say I have that list of these things that I do, don't do, and co- not drinking coffee is on the list. And and I don't drink coffee and I don't watch friends. Paul says, listen, you, you can do those those gray area issues that, you know, you think are making you more godly but it's not giving you any benefit towards indulgences of real sin. Because maybe some of the people that don't watch Friends have a secret addiction to pornography, right? Maybe you should turn the porn off and turn Friends on. You'd be better off. <laughs> and, and, and the list of do's and don'ts that, that you have, Paul says they don't benefit you. They're not, they're not making you a better Christian. They're not helping you with what the real struggles of life that God wants to work in your heart are. And so where do we find victory? It's not in the legalism. It's not in the rules and regulations. It's not in the things that, that's on the list that Jesus wants to nail to the cross. It's in a relationship with Jesus. It's in, it's in liberty of getting up every day and talking to the Father. You want to know one of the most glorious things of life and walking with Jesus is? is hearing his voice. Have a feeling when you spend time with him that, that he just touched your life. And and you know that he loves you and he touches you and he tells you he loves you. And, you know, I've shared for years and years and years. The most important thing as a pastor I want for our church is I want every one of you to hear for yourself very clearly, very, very, very um, passionately. I want you to hear God say to you, I love you. I love you. Because that changes lives. When you hear God tell you he loves you. And when you spend time with him and when you get addicted to that and you want more and more and more of that, it's powerful in your life. And, and those are the things that will help you against the sins that are in your life. You know, when I stopped doing a lot of the, the bondage that I was in when I came to Christ as a 20-year-old young man, um, you know, a lot of that stuff, I, I just naturally, by the work of God and the grace of God in my life, I was, I was getting close to Jesus and um, I just didn't want to do those things anymore. People say, oh, you, you know, now you're a Christian, Chris, you know, and I ran with these guys. No, 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 you're too good. You can't do this. I said, no, I can do it if I want. I just don't want to anymore. I can't do it. it. just doesn't, you know, I'm not, it just doesn't, I just don't want to do that anymore. And it's so cool when it happens so naturally. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's have the worship team come up. Let's close with the worship song. You guys are going to get a single worship to- song and beat the Methodist to church. You'll be done before le- before noon. Um Meet the Methodist to the restaurant. Beat the Methodist to the restaurant. That's how it goes. Sorry. That's how it goes. Um, Hey, we love you guys. And, uh, you know, again, the the message is in verse number 9 and 10. You can meditate on that. Is that in Jesus all is enough. Let's stand together. Um, All you need is Jesus. You don't need anything else. Abide in Jesus. Jesus tells us in John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in... And I in you for without me, you can do nothing but abiding in Jesus. And the Bible says, as we abide in Jesus, it says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And you're all good men and good women based on Jesus's righteousness. I will guide your life. You know, we talk about oftentimes knowing and doing and performing in your life the will of God. What is God's will for your life? And sometimes we take it off in a big chunk, and I think that's more difficult. And we're starting here in church to, to, to bring that down. Because if you, if you just take God's will in your life in 15-minute increments, it's easier to chew. It's easier to process. What's God's will for your life in the next 15 minutes? Do that. And then in 15 hours, and 15 days, and 15 weeks, and 15 months, where are you going to find yourself? Right in the center of God's will. Just take it at 15-minute increments and just do what God's calling you to do right now. You don't have to stress. You don't have to worry. It's a beautiful thing. Where God wants you, what God's going to do, You just every day, every moment, just stay close to Jesus, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll be exactly where God wants you in five years. You'll be exactly where God wants you in five days. And then we want to pray for you today. If there's anybody that wants to get right and is just not sure if you're a Christian in here today. You don't know if you're going to go to heaven. You just want to make sure today. You just want to make your peace with God. We want to give you that opportunity to do that as we do every week here in church. And so uh, let's pray together as a church. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I pray that you come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus died on a cross. And rose again the third day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Hey, I'll just warn you guys. um, You can read ahead. But Colossians chapter 3, where we'll be next week, deals with sin. Your sin, my sin. So either stay home if you're afraid. Or wear steel toe boots next week because Paul's talking about sin, so that's what we're covering, and we're going to deal with it head on. So we love you guys. Let's worship the Lord together. If anybody would like individual prayer, we invite you guys to come up and pray. We'll be up front to pray for you guys. God bless you guys. Have a great week.